Good evening, everybody. Good evening. So what do we have in Vayeshev? A lot of dreams. Right? Torah Porsche starts with dreams, ends with dreams. Even in the middle, when your safe is being sold, what's the first thing out of his... Uh, well, Rashi says, it's actually Hashem speaking. Let's see how his dreams are going to play out. The brother saying? The, it looks like it's the brother saying it, but Rashi says it's Hashem saying it. In other words... You know, there's a famous Yiddish expression, Mensch tracht und Gott lacht. You familiar with that? Man schemes, it doesn't rhyme in English, only in Yiddish. Uh, man, dream, man schemes while Hashem laughs. Because mm. all of our scheming, ultimately Hashem's plan is going to come, uh, come to fruition. Everything's about dreams here. This whole Parsha. Yosef's two dreams, the beginning, the two dreams of the ministers of Paro at the end that move the story along. And in between, Yosef is following his dreams. In other words, there's a very, I mentioned this in the Parsha punch this morning or yesterday. Everybody involved here knows something is going on more than what meets the eye. Pretty much nobody has it totally figured out. Let's start at the beginning of the Parsha, then we'll get into Yosef's dream. Yeah. So where, where does it exactly say, Yosef, where does it say? About his Yosef's dream. Let's see how it turns out. Right here. Is it right after they throw him in the when pit? Yeah, when they're about to throw him in the pit. When they're about to throw him in the pit. Uh, let's see where it is here. It's uh, chapter 37, verse 20. Chapter 37, verse 20. 264 and 265. In this Chumash. Yeah. Yes. So at the top of the page, Yosef went a- after his brothers. He found them in Doisan. They saw him from a distance, and before he came near, and before he came near them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to each other, Look, the dreamer has come. We're still talking about dreams. Yes. So now come and we'll kill him. Then we'll cast him in one of these pits and we'll say a wild beast has devoured him. But Hashem said, and that parenthesis is really uh-huh. quoting Rashi. We're going to see what indeed will become of his dreams. Right. That's the way Rashi tra- interprets it. Based on. You want to see the Rashi inside? Yeah, based on what? Why okay, Rashi says as follows. Because you could read it straight up. You can technically read the verse as saying, let's kill him. We'll throw him into one of these pits. We will say that a wild beast ate him. And then let's see what happens to his dreams. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So Amr Rabbi Yitzchak says Rashi. He 
He's quoting Rabbi Yitzchak, which we've said in the past, might be his father. This verse says, please give me some medrash on this. I need help with this. This is a spirit of holiness. This is a divine vision that's saying this. The proper way to read the verse is, they said, let's kill him. And the verse, in other words, the, the, the Ramban says in the introduction to the Torah, yeah, that the, stylistically, if you want to understand how sometimes the Torah is in the first person, sometimes it's in the third person. Sometimes you have Aedaber Hashem El Moshe Lemor, and sometimes this Moshe says talking to me, or Hashem speaking directly. Hashem speaks. So, which one is it? Is it so? The Ramban says the Ramban. I'm sorry, Nachmanides. He says this in, in his introduction to his commentary in the Torah. He points out that um, that the sty- stylistically. The Torah is written as if there's a narrator speaking. Mm-hmm. That's the style of how the Torah is written. Mm-hmm. As if there's a narrator telling you everything that's in the Torah. Right. And so therefore, when a narrator tells you everything that's in the Torah, sometimes he quotes, right. just like in any book, but there's a narrator telling the story, Right? So sometimes he'll actually quote the people that are speaking so it's in the first person. And sometimes he's telling the story of what happened. And he doesn't say... So here, Rashi says that they said, they said, let's kill him. But the verse finishes by saying that somebody else, in other words, as if it's the narrator saying, oh yeah... Let's see how the in how the dreams will turn out. In other words, what we're saying is that Hashem says, let's see who's gonna win this battle. Well, who's gonna turn out right? You or me? And you can prove it by saying the verse doesn't say they said we are going to. Well, that that's what the English is translating it in such a way. That it's incorporating what yeah, Rashi just said. The Torah itself doesn't say. The Torah say. itself, it's not clear. No. So, so Rashi says, You can't say that they're the ones that said, In other words, we cannot assume that the Torah is quoting them and that they're being sarcastic or snarky. But what I'm saying, the other proof is that every verse before it says they saw, they said this. But one here it's them speaking directly, right? I'm just saying here they saw that they, they said to each other, "Look, the dreamer is coming. Now we'll kill him, and then we'll cast him into the pits, and we'll say a wild beast devoured him." That's them speaking, mm-hmm. right? Yes. So Rashi is saying that you have to read the words. You can't read the words, yeah, as meaning that they were being snarky. 
Let's, let's kill him, throw him in the pit. Ha! Then we'll see what happens to his dreams. In other words, mm-hmm. Rashi says we can't read it that way in the simple understanding. And so therefore, since you can't read it that way, you have to attribute this to another speaker. But am I correct in saying that it doesn't say they, like every verse before, they say it says they saw, they said. It could, Venere, it. let us see. You could technically know, keep reading it that way in the Hebrew. But it doesn't say they said, let us see. But that was they said till now, right? You ended their quote right there. You could, instead of ending the quote after wild beasts devoured them, you could technically have continuation continuation of of that quote. Rashi says the snarky stuff we can't assume. Okay. But, But the constant focus, so, but really what's going on here, because even they referred to him, here comes the dreamer, right? So it turns out everybody along the road in this story is consumed by Yosef's dreams. Yosef himself ultimately gets sold first to the Arabs, then the Arabs sell him to the Midianites, the Midianites bring him down to Egypt, and sell him to Botifar, right? And he winds up in Botifar's house. Yosef also is throughout this entire time going, okay, what's the plan here? What's the plan? How do my dreams get fulfilled? And that's why, ultimately, when he meets the two ministers, right? What does he tell the two ministers? I haven't done anything wrong here. Get me out of here. You ever met a guy who was in jail who said he was guilty? Every guy in prison says he's innocent. I didn't do anything. That's what everybody in jail says, right? That's not new. For thousands of years, that's the way it was since the beginning of the world. Every guy in jail says he's innocent. So when Yosef turns to the to the uh, butler, to the wine steward, and he says to him, get me out of here at the end of the parsha, because there's no reason for me to be here. I didn't do anything to be put in this prison. What is he really saying? I didn't do anything. No, I have dreams to fulfill. Yeah. And clearly your dreams are another step along the way to me fulfilling my dreams. So that's why he says I didn't do anything wrong? What he's saying is, I can't do anything here, is really what he's saying. This is not where I'm functional. I've done everything I can here. I need to move on to the next step in my dreams. So now let's look at Yosef's dreams and understand what did Yosef really understand from his dreams? What did Yosef really understand from his dreams? That that's what he says to the wine butler at the end of the parsha. Fair? Okay. So let's look at Yosef's dreams for a second. We all know what Yosef's dreams were. They were collecting sheaves of, of wheat in the fields. And everybody made a bundle of wheat, and all of a sudden Yosef's bundle stands in the middle. Everybody else's bundle, all of his brothers, their bundles surround him, and they bow down to him. 
What's his second dream? Sun and the moon and 11 stars are bowing down to his star. Okay. Here's a simple question. At the beginning of next week's Torah portion, Paro has two dreams. Seven fat cows, seven skinny cows, emaciated cows, seven good stalks, seven uh, blithe stalks. Right? We all know, we all know what Paro's dreams are. We'll talk about it more next week. But everybody knows what it was. What's one of the main things, and we've talked about it in previous years in our Pasha class, right? What was one of the things that Paro couldn't figure out and that his stargazers couldn't figure out? One of the things they couldn't figure out was why is the dream twice? If basically the message is the same, what's the purpose of having two dreams? that basically send you the same message. Yosef, in interpreting the dreams for Paro, tells him, the reason why you had the dream twice is because the fulfillment of these dreams is happening now. So that's why you had it twice. To let you know, this is, there's a sense of urgency, this is happening right now. Your seven years of plenty are about to begin, which are going to be followed by seven years of famine. So Yosef explains in the interpretation, why there's two dreams. Show me where in this week's parsha the question is even asked. Why does Yosef have two dreams that are basically the same? Yeah, there's a difference, the sun and the moon, which symbolizes Yaakov and Bilab. The concept is the same. They're identical dreams. If the idea was that, you, that that was the purpose, that's why he had a second dream, then certainly there could have been two more sheaves in the original dream that would have symbolized or represented Yaakov and Bilah. No need for two dreams. When Paro has two dreams, that's one of the things that he's stuck with. Why did I have two dreams? But when Yosef has two dreams, nobody asks any questions. Okay? The answer to this question is also going to tell us what really thematically is the message of the two dreams. And because of that, we will be able to understand the rest of the Torah portion and see what Yosef is going through how he views and understands his dreams, and therefore how he's living the rest of the Torah portion. Ready? Okay. First of all, there's one significant difference between the two dreams of Paro and the two dreams of Yosef. Any attempt? Honestly, if I wouldn't have seen it in the Rebbe I'm not sure I would have come up with it myself. But once he said it, it's pretty clear. It's so easy. The main difference is that they're not exactly alike with Yosef. Okay, you yeah. could say that. I'm not talking about that. Be, no. Both of Paro's dreams are earthbound. It's animals and grain. 
Yosef's dreams are not. The first dream is earthbound, collecting sheaves. The second dream is in the heavens. Big difference. And the reason for that is, so in very simple, in simple terms, Paro's dreams represent Paro, that if you think of the hierarchy of creation, domain, inanimate, someach, a growth vegetable, you know, the vegetable kingdom, the grain kingdom, things that grow from the ground, Above that is chai, animals, and above that is medaber, humans, right? Paro has two dreams. They go from chai down to tzomeach. Starts with animals, and then descends further down the food chain to grain, which is below animals on the food chain. Why? Because Paro represents klipa. He represents the dark side. And in the dark side, there's an, an, a consistent descent. Lower and lower. So you start with Adam's, but in either instance, not only is there a descent, but they're both earthbound. Both dreams are earthbound. About earthy experiences. Yosef's dreams go the other way. They start off talking about grain, something that's earthbound, something that's connected to, to Olam Hazer. And they end in the heavens. Starts off in this physical world and ends in the heavens. That's Yosef's. So we have a completely, that's a, one gigantic difference between Paro's dreams and Yosef's dreams. Because of that, we now automatically see a significant difference between Yosef's dreams. One speaks to an earthy experience. And the other one speaks to a heavenly experience. So now let's analyze that a little further. Let's explain that a little further. So the Rebbe teaches us that the first dream of Yosef, which is an important part of the dream. We were collecting wheat and making bundles out of it in the field. The dream doesn't say there were 12 bundles of wheat in the field and 11 bundles circled mine and bowed down. No, it starts off saying we were collecting wheat in the fields. So the Rebbe says, the symbolism of this dream is that we are living an extraordinarily earthy life. Hashem took the soul, the neshama, caused it to descend into a physical world, to enclose itself in a physical body, to have to interact on a constant basis with an animal soul, with all of the challenges that go with that. And in order to be able to achieve the mission that the neshama came down into this world to achieve, you need to work. You need to be ma'almim alumin. You need to create bundles. You need to put in the work. And what is the work? Twofold. First of all, you have to interact with the physical world. If you're going to achieve the mission for which the soul descended into this world, 
You're going to have to interact with the body and the animal soul. You're going to have to. You're going to have to get down and dirty and deal with the grain. What's the second thing about the avoda? Come on, this one's an easy one. It's a softball. Second thing about the avoda? First avoda is you simply have to deal with a physical world. You have to deal with wheat. You have to deal with a physical world. You have worked to elevate the physical world. No? What's the second symbolism in that dream? Such an easy one. This one I guessed, actually. Also working there. No, they're making bundles. What's the symbolism of making bundles? Correct. Exactly. So your goal is to take disjointed sparks because stalks of wheat or whatever it is that they're collecting grow individually standing next to each other. They're separate, disjointed, not connected in any way. In fact, when a farmer farms and he drops his seeds, he doesn't want the seeds commingling because it's going to create cockeyed wheat. He wants straight up stalks of wheat. So you're taking individual things that, are, that represent each an individual spark, not just an individual spark of godliness in the world, but you're taking sparks that are separate from each other. They insist on their own being their own entity. And what are you doing with them? You're unifying them. You're making them into a bundle. And that's the mission of dealing with the physical world. That's the symbolism of the first dream. The whole first dream of Yosef is about taking bundles, taking bundles, and I'm sorry, taking disjointed wheat, sparks that seem to insist on their own individuality, their own independence, their own I'm in this for, for me, I'm not in this for anything else, and creating a sense of unity, which by definition, by definition, we had this in last week's Pasha, I definitely mentioned it in one of the Pasha punches, I'm not sure if I mentioned it in the class. Yaakov meets Esav. What's their conversation? Yaakov tries to give Esav this gift. Esav is tarofing him. Okay? And he says, no, 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 no. How does Esav say, I, I don't want the gift? He says, yes, rov. I got lots and lots and lots of stuff. Rove? Rove, a lot of stuff. stuff? Yeah, no, rove is a lot. A lot. <laughs> rove means a lot. I have lots and lots of stuff. When Yaakov turns to him and says, I don't need your gift. I got plenty of stuff on my own. Yes, Lee Rove, I have a lot. I have a lot. I have a lot. What is Yaakov's response? No, no, I insist you take it because God's been very gracious to me. I have everything. What's the difference in their two expressions? The difference in their two expressions is the clear expression of the difference between Kedusha, holiness, and Klippa, the dark side. The dark side is a lot of stuff. No cohesiveness, no collective ideas, no unity. Everybody's in it for themselves. 
everybody's in it for themselves. And since everybody's in it for themselves, when that's the way Klippa operates. It's very selfish, very self-absorbed. Very selfish and very self-absorbed and only cares about number one, themselves. That's the way Klippa operates. And so therefore, Esav is the master of Klippa, says, Yeshli Rov, I got lots of stuff. I got lots of stuff. It's all disjointed, yeah. And it's flowing all over the place, yeah. But I got lots of stuff. I don't need yours. What's Yaakov's response? No, Kedusha. Yeshli Kol, I have everything. Kol is the amalgamation of everything as one. A cohesiveness, a unity. So by definition, unity is Kedusha. Separation and disparity is Klippa. Unity means holiness. And it makes sense that unity means holiness. Why? Because the ultimate expression of holiness is ain't od milvado, nothing else exists except for Hashem. So that's the ultimate oneness, the ultimate unity. Or, and even Einstein ultimately was trying to create what he called the unification theory. So unity, by definition, is an expression of holiness. Separation, by definition, is an, is an expression of self-awareness, self-absorption, and therefore it's klipa, it's dark side. So what does Yosef see in his dreams? All of us are putting forth the work necessary because we find ourselves in this physical world we are all putting in the energy and the work that we have to do to create unity out of the disparity of the physical world. And what do we call that? That unification? Come on. Well, it is Malchut. Which is? Moshiach. <laughs> Remember when I ask a question, the answer is always Mashiach. <laughs> Just go with Mashiach. If you don't know the answer, no, no. If you don't know the answer to any one of my questions, just go with Mashiach. Nine times out of ten, you'll be fine. Right? The collection of all of the disparate sparks. Trace it all the way back. Eitz Hadat. Adam and Chava eat from the tree of knowledge. What, what's the result of them eating from the tree of knowledge? A nuclear explosion, the nuclear ash that comes, spreads everywhere like a cloud. And we've spent eternity, 5,784 years, collecting back all those sparks that flew all over the place in the explosion that came from eating from the tree of knowledge the purpose of which is to bring Mashiach. And we've talked about Adam and Chava before, how they knew intuitively, they, they had an idea intuitively that, that, that this had to happen and this is the way we could bring but it. Last week you said uh, they needed this, the Mount Sinai in order Right. So everything we're doing, exactly. They didn't know that. Oh, no, they, they do know that, but they're doing the best they can. You see, there's two things. You're right. You're 100% right, Avram. 
There's two things in the mindset. And chas for me to jump into the mindset of the 12 Shvatim. Okay? But I'm, what I'm saying is based on right. teachings of Chassidus. Okay? There's two things in their mindset. The first thing in their mindset is we have a mission in front of us. We have to do the best we can. Hopefully we'll be able to bring Moshiach. Even though they know they're handicapped. You know they're handicapped. Maybe we could pull this off. Maybe we could pull this off. Just like Yaakov knew he was handicapped, but he pulled it off as far as he could with Lavan, right? And then said, okay, Esau's the prize. Maybe we could pull it off. He comes face to face with it. No, not yet. Okay, back to work. But didn't see that in his dream? But idea, uh, but ideas, oh no, it's all about bringing Moshiach, 100%. Mm. The second thing is, <clears throat> there's a catch-22 to how our patriarchs and Yosef and the 12 tribes in this context are included, viewed the future revelation of Mount Sinai. They knew they couldn't really accomplish what would, want, what, what would be able to be accomplished post-Sinai. They knew that. But they also knew that Sinai can't happen until we do everything we can. They also understood that every one of these events is a warm-up, a step-by-step progression to be able to get us to Sinai. Even though when we'll come to Sinai, it's going to be such a quantum leap forward that it'll be not relative to all the preparation, right? That's why we have the Medrash that says that each of the first two of the Ten Commandments, they all died and had to be resurrected from the dead, right? Because they expired from the intensity. No matter how much they prepared, they were stuck. They couldn't really prepare for Mount Sinai without already having Mount Sinai. Who, who, who is this? Everybody leading up to the Jews who left Egypt. When the children of Israel leave Egypt, right? The ones who stood at Mount Sinai. <coughs> the Medrash says, I'll call Dibur Dibur, Parchanish Masan. They heard the first two commandments of Hashem. So and they all died. The twelve. The 12 tribes had to be united together. They're all in on this. What's the part? So what's the part of the dream that bothers them? So in other words, yeah. Just to finish this up. So did, did you say, do you think that uh, all of them knew, you said they knew what's coming. Did, did they know that there, there, there will be an event when they will receive the Torah? Like in those terms, it, they knew from Avram Avinu's promise right. that there's going to be a slavery, yeah. and that that afterwards they would go out with great wealth. That, that's explicitly in the pasuk. So certainly Avram Avinu passed that down to his grandchildren. This promise. You think they knew about an event? I think they did. Yeah, they probably were told. But even that, something is going to happen that's going to change everything, and we have to do everything we can to prepare for that something. So when we, so we get to them. So now all the brothers are looking at this dream. They get it. Because they're also involved. They get they know what their avoda is. They saw their father Yaakov turn Haran over. 
So they knew this concept that where there's an earthy experience. And within the context of the earthy experience, we have an obligation to do all the work we need to do to collect all the disparate sparks and bring them together and create unification out of them. That made sense to them. That was a good dream. What was the problem they had? Why do we have to bow to Joseph? Uh, what is he doing differently? What was bothering them? They said, Hamalach Timlech Aleinu, Emashal Timshal Banu. The dream itself they didn't have a problem with. The problem they had with the dream was wait a second, we're all doing this. Why do we have to bow to you? Why do you become the king? You, you mentioned, Rabbi, that Abraham Avinu, he knew about this and he passed it down. That there would be a slavery? Yeah. So and an, an exodus? The connection between this and Abraham Avinu going to Egypt? Did he go to Egypt? Abraham Avinu did go to Egypt. What, was there a connection? Did yes, there play, was, but we're way past that now. Yes, but we're way past that now. It's not this Hold on to that, Abraham. In good health. We come back to that Pasha next year. We'll talk about it. Okay? But yes. So what's really bothering them? What's bothering them? Why do we have to bow down to you? That's what's bothering them. What's Yosef's problem? That he doesn't know himself. He, exa- he can't explain it. He exactly, Aaron. Exactly. He can't explain it because he himself doesn't really understand it yet. He, he sees it intuitively. He sees very clearly that he sees the world differently. But he just doesn't have the words because he doesn't quite, because he hasn't really gone through his own full life experience, see where I'm going? To be able to truly explain it to them. In other words, why is there no debate? They say to him, What? Are you going to be king over us? Are you going to be dominating us? How dare you? Is there any recorded thing in the Torah of what Yosef responded? He was no dummy. He was 17 years old. It's not even like he was a baby. He's 17 years old at the time, right? And he's having these dreams. So clearly, you don't see anywhere where Yosef says back to him, no, no, you don't get it. This is a, let me explain it to you. No response. The Torah says there's no response from Yosef. It's an interesting point that the Rebbe brings out. A very interesting point. The Rebbe says that what, what is that secondary message in the dream that they all bow down to Yosef? What is that about? Ultimately, when push comes to shove, 
That's what the Rebbe says. The Rebbe says this explicitly. Ultimately, when push comes to shove, if you really want to be able to go out into the world and deal with the, the, the physical body and the animal soul and be able to conquer it and to be able to transform it, you're going to have to devote yourself to a, a preeminent, overarching teacher and a leader amongst the Jewish people. You need an Rebbe. Because even though you may understand logically that you have this mission and you get it, because maybe you learned Chassidus on your own or maybe you came to it some other way and you've come to the realization, okay, I'm in, I want to go, I'm going to collect the sparks, I'm going to take a physical world of completely disparate ideas and I'm going to bring it together as one and bring it under the umbrella of Hashem's unity. If you don't have a Rebbe, you're never going to get this done. Because you're not going to be able to really employ the energy necessary to be able to achieve it. You need that plug-in. And so the dream says two things. Three things. A whole bunch of things. They all understand the message of the collecting of the sheaves. No one is missing that. They all get that. It says that the brothers so don't understand how different they They don't see Yosef as that different from them. Remember, each of these guys has a unique personality. Later on in Vayichi, before Yaakov passes away, he's going to bless each one of them based on their own personality. So they look at each other and they go, we, each, we all have unique personalities and we all bring something unique to the table. And we're not denying that Yosef brings something unique to the table, but it is what Yosef brings to the table so outrageously different than what we bring to the table that because of that, we should all bow down to his bundle? They don't get it, and they don't see it. Yosef sees it, but doesn't himself get it yet, completely. But this dream serves as, therefore, as that third message that without that preeminent leader, who can see all of creation from an entirely different plane and an entirely different view, you can't implement this project on the ground because you're going to get swallowed by it. You'll get swallowed by the earth. It's fascinating because the Rebbe makes a reference to his father-in-law, whose name was also Yosef. But if you think about it in the modern vernacular, if you think about it in modern history, the Rebbe said this talk, uh, uh, gave over this talk, you know, he authored it, well, didn't author, he spoke it, and then later it was compiled to be written in 1960. Nine years after the Rebbe had officially assumed leadership of Chabad, right? But if you think about it, post-1960, Clearly, the Rebbe is that person that brought and continues to bring an incredibly different vision of the entire universe and of all of creation than any Jewish leader in history. At that time, the Rebbe was thinking about you. That's why he brought you to this world, Rabbi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two years later, yeah. you know the story that happened when I was born. I tell you the story. I don't think so. I Did I tell you this? No. Fascinating story. I just heard it recently. Crazy story. 
I mean, I don't mean to toot my own horn. I'm still trying to deal with it. So there's a rabbi, Nissen Mangel. He was the youngest survivor of Auschwitz. He had miraculous events in his life because he was a kid. So he was the kind of, the age that basically, maybe they put them to work. He looked a little bit bigger, so they put him in the slave labor. But really, these kids just killed them. That's what they did to them. He somehow survived. He survived Auschwitz, a whole bunch of stuff. Um, they were separating the able-bodied men from everyone else. He was with his mom, if I, think, if I remember correctly, and he was attached to his mom. His mom took him and physically shoved him over to the other line after they had already been separated over to one side. She pushed him over to the other line because obviously she intuitively knew what was about to happen to her. So she sent her son over the other Anyway, he survived. Became a rabbi. He is the translator of our Siddur. A man with an accent. English is not his first language. He did this work. He translated the Siddur. Great Torah scholar, devoted to the Rebbe. Very, very nice man. He's a very nice man. I know all his sons. One son was my camper. Yeah, Baruch Hashem, he's still alive today, yeah. He lives in Brooklyn. So, about a year ago, less than a year ago, I don't know when, he was going with my nephew from Germany, my, my sister's son. They were going to a Brit Milah out to Long Island. And they both knew the person, the father of the child. Rabbi Mangel's not a young guy anymore. He doesn't drive, probably, at all anymore. So he hitched a ride with my nephew, who was going also. So they both went to Lubavitch. So he's, he's like an icon in Lubavitch. So my nephew had a chance to talk to him the whole time on the drivers. On the way back, as they're coming into Brooklyn, so there's an area, now Baruch Hashem, the Jewish community is pushing in all directions. People were, were going back to places that have, in, in Brooklyn that haven't been Jewish in 50 years. No more. So, because, anyway, so as they're driving into Brooklyn, you come down Eastern Parkway, coming back from Long Island, there's a building, there's a few streets that go off crookedly off of Eastern Parkway. So the buildings come to a point there. The buildings that are standing on a thing, it's a triangular, almost, lot. So this particular building, Rahman al today, it's a house of worship of a different religion. But it was once a bit Knesset. And when you, when you drive past it, you can see on the front door, which is right at that point, the front door of the entry to the building, you can see it, just over the front door is a symbol of this other religion. But way up on top, there's a stained glass window. It has a Magan David still in it. Oh, wow. Still there till today. My father was once a Chazan there for, for a while. My father was a Chazan at that synagogue. So as they're driving past, Rabbi Mangel says to my nephew, you know, this used to be a synagogue. Not only was it a synagogue, but Shabbat afternoons, I used to go sometimes. Because that, that was really where Lukuti Sichot came from. The young men took this as material and they went to shuls between Mincha and Arvit, Shabbat afternoon, and they gave over Dvar Torah. This is what we're talking about now, with the Dvar Torah that was pre-printed for them, etc. Okay. Anyway, so he said, I used to come here in Chazar Astach. It used to be a shul. I used to come here to speak. 
many, many years ago. So my nephew says to him, I know it's a shul because I happen to know that my grandfather was once the chazan here in this shul. So Rabbi Mangel says, your grandfather? Who's your grandfather? Because my nephew's name is Gurevich, it's not Hecht. So he says, my maternal grandfather is Moshe Hecht, Chazan, Moshe Hecht. Wow, you're Moshe Hecht's grandson? And this is a fascinating story on many levels because I was Rabbi Mangel's son's counselor two summers in a row. And I had a very, I have till today, a very close relationship with his son, who was my camper. We had ample times that we interacted with each other, and he never asked me, who's my father? I don't know why. Never told me the story. So Rabbi Mangel says to him, I have a story about your grandfather. So my nephew says, really, what's the story? He says, I distinctly remember I don't know exactly which year, but it was in the early 1960s. It was Shabbat Chol HaMoyed Sukkot. Shabbat in the middle of Sukkot. The Rebbe had a Fabrengen in the Sukkah. In later years, the Rebbe stopped Fabrengen in the Sukkah because they couldn't build the Sukkah big enough to hold the crowd. <clears throat> so the Rebbe stopped Fabrengen in the Sukkah, on Sukkahs. But it was Shabbat Chol HaMoyed. The Rebbe had a Fabrengen in the Sukkah. And during the Fabrengen, your grandfather went over to the Rebbe, because in the early years, you could do something like that, uh, went over to the Rebbe and told the Rebbe that he gets a mazel tov because he had a son. He had a new son. His wife gave birth to a boy. And Rabbi Mangel tells my nephew, the Rebbe lifted up both hands and said, with excitement, a new chassid has come into the world. <laughs> My nephew's sitting in the car with Rabbi Mangel, and he's like, what? He, it was, he didn't remember exactly the Lushan. Either Anaya chassid is a code of a brand new chassid has come into the world, or... Nocha chassid, and yet another chassid has entered into the world. Wow. He didn't remember which one the Rebbe said, but it was one of those two. This is what the Rebbe said to my father. My nephew waits till he drops off Rabbi Mangel, and he immediately calls me. <laughs> and he says, I have a story to tell you. I need to know if you knew the story. I said, no, no one ever told me the story. My father never told it to me. My father never told it to me. And now the two of you know it. You hadn't been born yet. No, no, that's right so after. Right after. Right after I right was after born. born. I was born Sukkot. He said it was sometime in the early 60s on the intermediate days of Sukkot. I was born the first day of Sukkot. Your dad wasn't, wasn't he was a he, businessman. He never told me the story. Your dad was a businessman. And a chazan, yes. And a yeah. For sure there's no way that Rebbe would have known that, you know, about you being born. I would have, well, because it was on Chag, in other words, if I would have been born on a weekday, I'm sure that my father would have immediately called the Rebbe's office mm-hmm. and said, please inform the Rebbe that I had a son. Mm-hmm. There's no way he would have known. 
Huh? There's no way that he... But since I was born on Chag, so I was born on a Monday. So Monday and Tuesday were Chag, right? So Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday, I guess, first of all, officially you're not supposed to write on Chol HaMoyed. So they, my father didn't obviously inform, and probably because my father was thinking he's going to be Shabbos and Crown Heights, and he'll go up to the Rebbe and tell the Rebbe then that he had a boy. So I got this jolt in my, in my personality. I got a story told about me decades later that I had never heard before. So that's a message. The Rebbe's sending me a message from Anna. What is the message? You better be a chassid. Step it up, dude. <laughs> okay, but let's go back to this. That was a real digression, but whatever. Hopefully people will enjoy the story. Um, so, Yo- so the Rebbe says in the Sikha that you need a Yosef, because without a Yosef you're not going to be able to get this done. And that's the message of the dream. If you think that, in other words, if you think you've got it all figured out, I understand my mission, I know why I'm here, I'm here not to indulge in pleasures, I get it all, I understand. I'm supposed to battle my animal soul, I'm supposed to battle its yearning to make disparity, battle its yearning to make everything rove, make everything separate and different and and, and, and individualistic and self-absorbed, etc. I get it. And I'm here to work with all of this self-absorbed world and to make it unified. I'm here to do it. I'm ready to fight. I'm here to accomplish the goal. Make my bundle. I'm here to make my sheath. And if you don't have a rebbe, then... You will you, never be able to do it. You will think you are Moshiach. Ah! ah, 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 ah. <laughs> exactly. I'm wrong. You are 100% correct. Exactly. Without a rebbe, you're going to convince yourself that you're God. Which will be the ultimate, that'll be the ultimate self-absorption. That's the ultimate self-absorption. Knowing all this, why didn't the Rebbe make sure there's a successor? Because he doesn't, we hear, we he doesn't need a successor. The Rebbe still the Rebbe. Continues the Rebbe and says, so what's dream number two then? What's dream number two? Sorry, one more question. Yeah. So we always assume this thing about the jealousy of the brothers and all that stuff. But these these guys are holy men. They're, right. They're, they're like great. Right? So unless you read it this way, no, there's why, no way to understand it. My question it. is, it's a dream for God's sake. It's from Hashem. Why are you even picking on this guy? Because they know it's real. If they know it's real and they still... So that's complete... Ripping. Again, that's complete. if you want to share with us this dream... We get it. We even get, okay, that we even get that your individuality versus our collective individualities, yeah, is that you have a a better beat or a better, uh, is that term they use? You have a beat on it. You you have a better step on this on this idea of taking the gap the sparks and gathering them in. I got it. I'm okay with that, says Yehuda or Shimon or Levi. I'm okay with that. But that you're the king, that we all have to be subservient to you, I don't get it. They don't get it, but they know it's true. 
They're afraid it's true. They're afraid it's true. But it's a dream. And maybe you could even argue, maybe you could even argue that when they say to him, Will you be the king over us? Will you dominate us? Think about this for a second. Maybe they want an answer. Because they know it's true. Maybe you can give us some insight? Either I'm trying to say this. They're, forget about jealousy and all that stuff. Right. They are in complete rebellion against Hashem with Yosef. With their attitude, their whole thing about the dreams. They, they don't think the they are. They know the dreams are from God. They don't think they are. They know a dream is from Hashem. Right. Okay? They in know the dream is real. They, okay, so no. then, hey, you know what? Why pick on Yosef? They, hey, it's Hashem saying this. It is what it is. At their stage, in, you know, at the, with their... No, they think it's Yosef. It, it, okay. They have doubts about if it's from Hashem. It's just that part of it they can't understand. It doesn't make any sense. And maybe even they're waiting for an answer. And when Yosef can't give them an answer, because he doesn't quite understand it himself yet, they're lost. They, they say, well, why should I take you seriously? Okay, we don't understand it, but it's from Hashem. The dream is from Hashem. So they have they their own this. views of how this is supposed to play itself out. Okay, again, why, why, why pick on Yosef? It's just a dream. Because he, must be true. Because he's Hashem. pretty much saying to them, I, I need to be in charge oh, here. Okay, so he is... Right. He does. He, it's uh, not like he. he does, they all understand what the dream said, and, they're okay with it, and, right? and they know that he. That's and he. They know that he knows what the dream said. And this is the guy they wanted to kill. So Yosef needed more humility here, or maybe. Uh, okay, understanding. Maybe, but you know, okay. there's a famous story. I think I've told it in my class before. There was a rabbi. Pre, during, and post World War II in the United States, his name was Rabbi, Lazar, Rabbi Elazar Silver. Rabbi Elazar Silver was a very colorful man who, because Judaism in America was so, uh, how can I say this, uh, overwhelmed by the forces of darkness that thought that the best way for Judaism to survive is to secularize Judaism as much as possible. He was, and the, and, and the average American guy thought that clergymen who represented the secularization were legit clergy representing the Jewish people. So Rabbi Lazar, he was the orthodox pushback. Very colorful guy with a big personality, etc., etc. And he was the self-proclaimed self-proclaimed chief rabbi of the United States and Canada. Because he wanted, you know, he wanted to give himself authority so he could push back against certain people and certain ideologies. So that's who he was. And he was a very colorful personality. Did ever once told a story about it by Fabrengen that he was once testifying in court, in a civil court, as expert testimony or character witness, I'm not exactly sure what it was. When he completed his testimony, the judge said to him, you understand, Rabbi Silver, that we take your testimony very seriously 
because you are one of the most prominent rabbis in America. He said, correction, Your Honor, I am the most prominent rabbi in America. <laughs> so the judge said to him, does not Judaism preach humility? He said, yes, Your Honor, but right now I'm under oath. <laughs> <laughs> That was his response. <laughs> okay? That was his response. Right now I'm under oath. So, so this, this is who... Uh, so y Yosef is stuck in a bad place. Right now I'm under oath. He has no choice. I'm telling you like it is. What's the second dream? The second dream of Yosef is in the heavens. What do the heavens represent? The Rebbe says, the Rebbe says that one of the things that's going to come perforce as a result of you accomplishing the work is that you're going to become a very spiritual person. You can't help it. You will wind up in a state where you have incredible spiritual vision. Not necessarily prophetic, divine vision. You will just see the world very differently because you will approach it very differently. I give the most coarse example of this. You want to know the most coarse example? I'll give you a very coarse example. I can't believe that I'm living without pizza. But I am. Last night for the Kolal Erev, we had, we had, I got, I ordered, as if, because I'm some sort of a masochist, I ordered pizza, okay, eggplant parmesan, which is a delicacy I only have from time to time. Okay, and baked ziti, but baked ziti, even though it's sort of simple, it's just pasta with tomato sauce and cheese, but I happen to like it. That's what I ordered, and pizza. That's what I ordered last night, like an idiot, right? Okay, I'm proud to say, I'm proud to say, I did not have even one morsel. Because I'm on a very, very strict health diet right now. Very strict. To get my health to peak performance. A very strict health diet right now. Okay? So what happens? You reach a point where you look at the pizza and you look at the eggplant parmesan and even though there's a part of you that loves the smell and you would like to eat some of it, etc., etc., even before I went on this diet, even before I went on this diet, I was really dealing with, because I'm not as young as I used to be, that if I eat after a certain time in the evening, I am doomed to acid reflux, to an acid reflux attack. And some nights, I so know it's coming, I just go to sleep on the couch sitting up, put a pillow behind me and a blanket, because if I try to lay down, I'm going to have a horrible acid reflux attack. Right? So what happens? Because for now, all of a sudden, you, you come to that point in your life where there's now a trade-off. Right. If you want to eat that sushi, or you want to eat that piece yeah, of pizza, you're going to pay for it the rest of the night. That's what's going to happen. And you reach that point where you say what, hopefully, if you're maturing, what do you say? Uh, I don't want to pay for it. It's just not worth it. <laughs> it's not worth it. Yeah. Not that I don't want to pay for it. It's not worth it. Yeah. As enjoyable as the pizza would be, as enjoyable as the eggplant parmesan would be, it's just not worth 
all the weeks that I've put into this health diet to ruin it with one night eating eggplant parmesan. That's not worth it. It's not worth it. So you, what happens? So now back to the nimshal, okay? What happens is, with maturity, effort, and energy that you put into anything, once you accomplish this, that spiritual quest, you wind up in a higher state of consciousness. Right. And you start to see the world completely differently. Not you leave the world. So this is 100% against that. You're still continuing to do your work. But when you started out the work of putting forth the effort and the energy, by the way, I forgot to point this out. I don't think I pointed it out earlier. The Rebbe says, again, one of the differences between Yosef's dream and Paro's dream. Paro's dream, it's a sense of entitlement. That's what Klippa is. The cows are there. And he's feeling bad when the cows get swallowed by the skinny cows. You didn't do anything to create those cows. It's just there. Right? Klippa is, has a sense of entitlement. Everything belongs to me. Give it to me. Kedusha says, no, we have to put on the work to actually collect the bundles. Results only come from your own effort. That was another point that I would point it out. Plus, it's difference. only through the spirituality that they can pass. So now you've reached a greater level of spirituality, a greater level of consciousness. You're still collecting bundles. Right. But it's not the same as when you started collecting bundles. Just like on the diet. Weeks into the diet, when you start to feel more healthy already, and you're starting to see the results, you're at a different state of consciousness than the first three days when you feel like you're about to starve to death. And you can't believe how, am I, how much longer in my life am I supposed to go without a piece of chocolate? Right? So you're still doing the same work. You're still working it. You're still working with the world. You're not chas v'shalom leaving the world right. and discarding the world. No. You understand that your avoda is continuously to be collecting the bundles, but your consciousness level is one of great spirituality. You've entered the heavens. You've entered the heavens. Now, when you've entered the heavens, what's your mission now, really? Your mission now is bring heaven down to earth. Create fusion between the two. Be able to evoke that sense of consciousness in all of creation that's around you. Be able to bring down the heavens down to earth so that the earth is able to feel that level of consciousness within it from the heavens. Well, there's a part of you that says that shouldn't be that hard. Because I'm removed, I'm quite, I'm insulated. Since I've become a star in the sky, I've become so spiritual, I'm a bright, shining light on my own. It should be easy to be able to create that fusion. Says the Rebbe, what's the message of the second dream? When you reach that higher level of spirituality, you still need a Rebbe. Right. That's the most... Uh, Even though you've reached that higher level of spiritual consciousness, you're still going to need the Rebbe to be able to achieve the fusion. Mm -hmm. Based on what? 
Based on what? Does the Rebbe say that? that because they bow down, they're all bowing down again to his star. You still have the same experience. Right. They're still bowing down to his star. No, it's more in the spiritual. Right. And you're it's in the heavens. Rebbe. And they're in the ha- Yaakov was his Rebbe. Right. But there was one problem with Yaakov being Yosef's Rebbe. What was the problem? Yaakov probably kept telling Yosef over and over again, there's something very different about you, and I can't figure out what it is. So that's a problem. That's a challenge. And Yaakov keeps telling him, you're only going to figure this out on your own. So the Rebbe says, even then, when you come into the heavens, you're going to try to create that fusion. Again, what is that fusion? That's Mashiach. Where the physical world remains physical, but the all of creation now has a different sense of consciousness. That's what the Rambam says. The Rambam says the old aim being and that what's gonna happen when Sheikh comes is the entire world will be focused only on knowing God. Why? Because they will have come to the consciousness that says that the eggplant parmesan is just not worth it. And to tie it back with Pharaoh. So now that we know what these two dreams really mean, now we can start to understand the Yosef's journey. Yosef knows he's going to struggle. Yaakov tells Yosef, go see how your brothers are, right? Rashi says right up front, Yosef says, I'm ready. Doesn't he know they hate him? Rashi says, that didn't bother him. Does Yaakov know that the brothers hate him? Also, yes. So everyone sees destiny in this. Everyone sees this as the beginning of the journey. Yosef understands intuitively, I'm going to have to be separated from my brothers so that I can embark on this journey and be able to fulfill these two dreams, particularly the way we just interpreted them. And so even though he later meets Gav, Rashi says, the angel Gavriel in the field, and he asks Gavriel, where are my brothers? And Gavriel says, they left this place. Rashi says, what was Gavriel telling him? Stop calling them your brothers, they've left that. That's, that's not happening, they're not your brothers anymore, they don't act like your brothers. And Yosef still goes to them. Because intuitively Yosef knows, okay, let the party begin. And so his whole sale to the Arabs, the, even the throwing in the pit. There's no water. Water symbolizes Torah. <clears throat> Rashi says, the pit was empty, had no water. Water represents Kedusha. Rashi says, what was in the pit? Snakes and scorpions. No water, but snakes and scorpions, there were. 
The Midianim actually sold them to the Arabs. Right. No, no, the other way around, Rashi says. No. The Arabs sold to the Midianim. Maybe I'm wrong, but let's look. Because they put him in the pit. They're not going to sit there and eat where he's there. They're going to move away. Rashi, Rashi, they took Yosef out of the pit. They sold him to the Arabs. Yishmaelim and Midianim, and then Yishmaelim sold him to the Midianites, and the Midianim marched on Mitzrayim. I know it looks like it went the other way, right? By the verses, you would think that. Well, you can't. It's not clear in the verse. They said, the verses say the Midianim took him out of the pit. They say, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. Yeah, that... Then it says, a Midianite group came by. Right. They're the ones that... No, is the brothers pulled him out. The, the brothers pulled say, Yosef and lifted him say, from the pit. It doesn't say the brothers took him out of the pit. It says they, somebody, Vayim Shechu, they. Yeah, Midianim. The they, no, the they is, is the brothers. We, we it has to be because look at the rest of it. Mm-hmm. I see the way you're reading it. Okay, but you don't, then you don't have the sale. Anyway, Rash. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so he, he winds up in the pit and there's snakes and scorpions. Why? Because he says, yeah, this is where it's at. I'm supposed to be in a place devoid of, devoid of Kedusha. What are snakes and scorpions? Symbolism of all darkness. Yeah, I get it. He gets sold as a slave to Yishmaelim. The Rebbe points out a very interesting thing. They're selling him as a slave. Means that when... The fact that they're able to sell him as a slave means that they have an ownership over him. And so everything a slave purchases belongs to his master. So when Yosef becomes the viceroy of Egypt, and everyone becomes his slave, so then by definition, all everyone in Egypt is now a slave to all the brothers. But but all of that, and we're setting the stage for next week's parsha. When he starts to interact with his brothers. That went on for how long, Rabbi? He's 30 when he interprets. He's 17 when he's sold. And he's 30 when he interprets um, Pharaoh's dreams. And he's 39 when he reveals himself to his brothers. Was there any other connection between these dreams and the Pharaoh or... You were talking about the Paro's dream just to illustrate that the difference. The Rebbe talks about the same, so show the differences and to bring up the question of why there's no question about the two dreams. Oh. Here, when there is a question, then. Right. Right. And that's the process of this entire parasha. That's why he winds up by Potiphar. That's why he winds up interacting with Potiphar's wife because he's trying to figure out how do I extricate these sparks? How do I elevate it? What am I supposed to be doing here? And therefore, when he winds up in the in the prison, he says, "Okay, more sparks to collect, more drunken sheaves." And when he meets the the wine butler, he's already at that point accomplished so much because he has transformed Potiphar's house. He's transformed so much of Egypt. He's transformed the prison. 
He's in charge of the prison. He was in charge of everything but the Abraham, and then he became in charge of the prison. That's a spiritual thing, also, right? So now he says, okay, now it's time to go for the gold. Time to take over Paro. And so he says, no, 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 I have work to do. I'm here for nothing, because I've already accomplished everything I need to accomplish here. I, I'm here now for nothing. So you got to get me out of here so that I can, because you're my ticket back to Paro, because that's what I need to get to next. Mm. And if we're going to fast forward a little bit, the Zohar talks about Paro, that I've quotes it many, many times, that Zohar, that Paro is about, his name means uncovering, Priya, to uncover. He is the revelation of the deepest, darkest lights, the most powerful lights. Uh, just to review on the dream again, sorry. Um, so are we saying that the two dreams of Yosef, they were not imminent because they were actually different, they were not the same dream? Right. There's two separate messages to them. Right. Completely two separate. I mean, they're, they're, they they're follow. Similar. The two messages follow in succession. It's a two step approach to the avoda that he has to do. There's no reason to call them imminent because their messages are. They're similar, but they're, they're not the making same. Making the same message twice, but in different contexts. Mm. Teaching you more and more. What's the takeaway? Takeaway is the Rebbe says very, very clearly, the time for our Gula has arrived. The Rebbe said that in no uncertain terms. There's no question we are watching a world evolving towards Mashiach. Darkness, I told this to somebody this morning, one of the things that the Navi says about the coming of Mashiach is that people are going to say, they're going to call darkness light and light darkness. Mm-hmm. That stopped now. The darkness says I'm darkness. I'm sorry, who said that? The Navi. About the time just before Mashiach. So now we're already at a place where darkness says the darkness. They rear its ugly head and they're saying openly what it is that they want. So it's an amazing moment. And the Jewish people are more alive than ever before. Someone sent me a clip today that there's a, one of the kibbutzim that was decimated, decimated, was this totally, totally left, left, peace-seeking, that if only we could get to sit down, they were totally for the plight of the Palestinians. This kibbutz right. was... Yes. Totally that way. Mm-hmm. Totally not religious. And totally like, you know. Outside the kibbutz today, there's a huge banner hanging. <laughs> huge today. It says, Zachor et Asher Asalacha Amalek. Do not forget what Amalek did to you. So just the idea that the people of this kibbutz would put a verse from the Torah, <laughs> that they would quote a verse from the Torah, is mm-hmm. just an indication you can't even imagine how far they've come to quote a verse from the Torah. Yes. So we've come a very long way. And our brethren have come a very long way. And it is our job 
since we are already in the heavens, and we can see it, to help, and because the Rebbe is telling us to, we have the Rebbe that we've committed to, the Rebbe is telling us to, bring the gula now, to what you have to do, to the hospital so you can do everything you can possibly do, and see to it that Mashiach comes now. L'chaim. Very good. Very good. Thank you so much. Beautiful. There you go. Rabbi, I saw an article about walking 20 minutes